0: Good evening, everyone. How's the sound? Okay. So tonight I'm going to talk about the second distortion, dukkha and suka. And as you probably know, dukkha is often translated as suffering, but it's also discomfort, something that's unsatisfactory or painful, just not quite right, not fulfilling our wishes. And then sukha is happiness. And this pair is different from the other three pairs. I'm going to just tell you a little bit about Pali. So if you look at the first one, impermanent and permanent. So permanent, the word in parentheses is Nietzsche. And when you put an A on the front of many of the words in Pali, you just get not. It's so Nietzsche means permanent and anietzha is not permanent. And the the one the third one about self, atta is self, and anata is not self. It's a little like the way we use a and an because it starts with an a. It gets anata is not self. And the last one, suba. Is beautiful, and asuba is not beautiful. And when you think of well, what's not self? What's not beautiful? What's not permanent? It's a it's a broader range than when we say we're working with dukkha. It's not adukkha that's given as the sort of. Uh, Part of the distortion is sukha so it's not everything that is devoid of dukkha it's actual happiness so we think something's going to bring us happiness did that make sense yay i like feedback <laughs> where we, of course, all want happiness. It's it's natural to all sentient beings, to all living beings. We want to avoid pain. We want to avoid suffering. We want happiness. We want comfort. And the Buddha actually encouraged us to develop and cultivate happiness, and he developed us to be comfortable, comfortable enough that we can meditate and we can practice virtue and generosity. So it's, it's like, okay, um, this is a perfectly natural thing to want, and the point of the distortion, of course, is when we think something is bringing us happiness, but it's really going to deliver something else. Pain, uh, suffering, discomfort, trouble of some kind. So I'm sure we can all think of examples of when this is the case. You know, we get excited about getting something new and we're looking forward to the happiness or the comfort or the ease that it'll bring. And of course, there's always some kind of maintenance. Um, It deteriorates. There's always some, this is, this is sangsara. This is the way things work here. It's never quite the way we hoped. Or that Happiness or excitement or pleasure or comfort only lasts a short amount of time, and then we need something more we're all familiar with this cycle and the people the the marketing folks in the world know exactly how this works i was it was we had an interesting experience at our vihara, so we have a a, a a RAV4. We're living in the mountains in the forest, and the rodents got under the hood and tore up the barrier, the insulation, or whatever that is between the engine and the cabin of the car, which is very bad. <laughs> to have happen, and um, we took it in for a service and they've said, look at this, Um, and actually, you know, we had to get it repaired, okay. So the insurance company pays for the repairs on this kind of damage, rodent damage, and it's a really common thing to happen in the forest. And they also pay for a rental car. So what I discovered is when they give you a rental car, they give you a, the, same, the same make it's still a Toyota, but they give you the next bigger one with cooler things and leather seats, and you start using this vehicle, and all, they keep it in the, sh- the other one in the shop for like a week or something, <laughs> and you're thinking, this is pretty nice. <laughs> and it's like wow what a marketing ploy and then i'm i'm thinking this is really nice and we don't need this but you know you can i can see where that leads and it's important to use that where does this lead as a way to check ourselves, when we're enthusiastic about something or falling in love with something or somebody. It's another area where sometimes we have a certain amount of distortion mixed in. Before I became a nun, I was a minister for a few years. And I performed, um, I was um, officiating for wedding ceremonies, marriages, and I'd work with the couple to plan their vows and what their wedding would be like and the ceremonial part of it. And there was a big difference in how couples related to each other, of course, and Sometimes people have so much hope and excitement and not very much reality. (laughs) And, you know, when what they want to say for the wedding is something like, you're my other half, you complete me, now I'm whole... Um, you know, all kinds of <laughs> things that are um, sweet but not very realistic. And also just the way they they are approaching this whole thing kind of made me worry sometimes. Mm-hmm. One, one couple gave me a ceremony script that had the word forever in it. I think it was like ten times. <laughs> There was a lot of hope there <laughs> but you know when we enter anything in this world we need to consider the reality of how long how how there's another side to it when it comes to happiness and um dukkha and then you get couples who are really they know each other well they're looking at and and have already dealt with some of the ways in which they they rub up against each other and irritate each other and and they're already working through things and they're they've got a different kind of level of values around why they're together and so what the buddha i think is asking us to do is Not that we stop engaging or bringing happiness into our lives, but a different kind of happiness. And to be aware of when we're not looking at the whole picture. And sometimes um, this distortion can come up really strongly with anyone in our life, someone we work with, or um, whomever, where either we, we are so um, sort of happy to have this person in our life or to meet a person like this that we can't find, we don't see any, anything wrong or anything that doesn't match our expectations. And usually that's because we don't know them very well, and we filled all the blanks in with something that we really want <laughs> or our, um, the things we take for granted. And it works the other way, too. If there's someone in our life where we can't think of one thing we like about them, there's probably some distortion at work. If we think about the things that um, cause us to feel um, important or things that we work hard to get, like a promotion or a job or, um, or, or finding that relationship, it's very easy to get swept up in the positive and not look, not prepare ourselves for maybe even just a couple of months later when it starts to get harder. And so the Buddha uses these examples like, you know, when we feel like um, like our health is lasting and we know intellectually that it's not always going to be the case but we might go through a phase in our life when especially when we're you know younger where it feels like it's going to last forever to be this strong or this resilient Or that whatever I do and get injured by, I can still recover. And that idea, these ideas that are in the back of our mind about how invincible we are, or how um, unshakable or indestructible something is in ourselves or in our life, it's time to look deeper and understand more. When we prepare ourselves, when we, as the Buddha says in the many suttas, when we prepare ourselves and we realize this isn't a sure thing, even though so far in however many years we've lived we haven't experienced something that we would find painful to know that it could come anytime and the point is not to be worried or not to be sad or not to be afraid but to recognize that there's something more to cultivate in our lives something more solid to look to than anything in the material world and even in, you know, whatever we can um, develop that the world might see as an accomplishment. Because, um, let me see, it's not that the world, it's not that others don't see the accomplishments that have more um, deep and lasting influence, but there's a lot of encouragement and pressure to develop in ways that are pretty insubstantial, if you know what I mean. So what am I talking about when I'm talking about the things that have more stability, have more um, lasting support for our development and for our happiness? It's things like we saw in the highest blessings sutta, that we chanted the other day. You know, developing generosity, developing virtue, developing that um, kind of caring for others. And there's that whole list that actually gives us more happiness, more of a lasting happiness. the qualities that the Buddha encouraged us to develop, and also the wisdom. So seeing through these vipalasa helps us develop wisdom, or wisdom comes to help us see through them. And by looking deeply into them, wisdom arises. And that's something that we don't lose. In fact, that can continue on even after this lifetime ends. I want to share a few of the poems. A couple of the poems from the Enlightened Nuns. There were two, um, as you know, two disciples, two monks who were the Buddha's chief disciples on the monk's side, Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Maha Moggallana, if you know about them. So Venerable Sariputta was foremost in wisdom and Venerable Maha Moggallana was foremost in psychic powers. And the Buddha also identified two chief bhikkhuni disciples, one foremost in wisdom, and her name was Kema, and one foremost in psychic powers, and her name was Upalawana. And Kema's poem talks about... um, an effort for um, Mara, the evil one, trying to seduce her. And he said to her, You are young and beautiful, and so am I. Come, Kema, let's enjoy each other and make music together. We all know what that means. This bo- She says back, this body is rotting, ailing, and frail. I'm horrified and repelled by it. My craving for sensual pleasure has been rooted out. Sensual pleasures are like swords and stakes. The body, senses, and the mind, just the chopping block on which they are cut. What you call sensual delight is no delight for me now. What you take as pleasures are not for me. The mass of darkness is shattered. So know this, evil one, you're defeated, you're finished. Worshiping the stars, serving the sacred flame in a grove, failing to grasp the true nature of things, foolish me, I thought this was purity. But now I worship the awakened one, supreme among men, Doing what the Buddha taught, I am freed from all suffering. So I know that's, that must sound like a pretty extreme take on the sensual life. <laughs> it's like, I'm over this dude, leave me alone. <laughs> but um, what happens to create that kind of change in a person is... Seeing how much more satisfying and splendid the qualities are of the holy life, or of the, and I don't mean holy life like you have to be a nun or a monk, but the life of really taking up the spiritual practice, the spiritual life, spiritual pleasure and joy, you know, what it comes from meditation, but also comes from really being filled with the Dhamma and living it. And that is available to all of us. And this, as the wisdom develops in the mind, you know, we'll talk about beauty in a few days. We still see the beauty. It's still there. We still have the, um, the love for the people around us and in the world, but it grows much larger and is without that stickiness and attachment. So the the joy and the pleasure of letting go of s- sort of um, temporary delights, this is what gradually brings about this much broader and more lasting Um happiness so we'll see if we can wrap our heads around that (laughs) and I want to talk about Mm -hmm. uh oh I seem to be missing a piece of my talk uh oh it doesn't seem to be here Okay. Hmm. I guess we're not gonna place that. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna have to tell you a story on the fly. <laughs> this is about Sumeda. She was a daughter of a king, and his chief queen. And she heard the Buddha teach, and she says this really, in her words, this really, it's really beautiful, the opening of her her verses, which I intended to bring with me, but did not, apparently. And um, unless there's something stuck together here, which I don't think is happening. No, I think it's probably, maybe it didn't get printed. Anyway, she talks about how it changed her, how she became um elegant el- eloquent and learned and wise and content and it just it just it showed her a whole different experience of life you know coming from this very um wealthy pampered lifestyle she was a princess and she just like didn't want that anymore she really saw the beauty and the depth of her own being, her own mind and her own experience living in line with Dhamma. And she goes to her parents and she asks to leave and become a nun. And of course, they're like absolutely having none of it. And she talks to them about the, the reality of life taking part in what she saw now as frivolous things and also the dangers of sensual pleasures. And I wasn't going to read her whole verses because it's called The Great Chapter and it goes on for pages and pages and pages. She's called Sumedha of Great Wisdom. And it's like, (laughs) but it's really a lot of the Buddhist Dhamma listing all the different similes he used for the dangers of things. And, you know, so it's pretty intense. However, I want to read to you the poem that Maddie Weingast wrote when he read her verses and he was inspired by them. Sumedha, Great Wisdom. I was wearing a new white dress on the morning I first heard the Dharma. Something was calling, but I couldn't quite make it out. I started spending more and more time alone in my room. One morning over breakfast, my mother asked me what was going on, so I told her. The Buddha's path isn't easy to follow, my mother said, especially for someone accustomed to getting whatever she wants. Marry the good king, Anikadatta. Enjoy all the things young ladies enjoy, dressing up, being waited on, and going to expensive parties like weddings. Today you want to dress this body up and sell it at a wedding, I told her. But soon enough, They'll be selling it to the graveyard for nothing. We are cows chasing the axe. We are soft flesh chasing the cobra's fangs. We are dry straw chasing the torch. We are lovers chasing our own reflections. Mother, we are walking food. The vultures circle, we lie down, and the feast begins. My parents watched as I took a long, sharp knife and cut off my long, black hair. Just then, King Anakadatta walked in. He looked at me, blade in one hand and a couple of feet of hair in the other, and he smiled. With your hair cut short, Sumida, you look even more beautiful. Soon all the women in our kingdom will be cutting their hair just like yours, Come, my love, the whole world is chasing happiness. You and I will be among the lucky few who win the race. Good king, I said, if we spend our lives running after the things of the world, we will die and keep right on running. Stealing the things we mean to earn, setting fire to the things we mean to protect, drowning the people we mean to love, and turning into enemies, those most like ourselves. I threw my hair to the ground. Anikadatta knelt down, picked up a few strands, and then let them fall. Then he stood and turned to my parents. You who would have been my mother, you who would have been my father, let Sumedha go. May she find the path and may she one day return to show us all the way home. And that's about how it goes in her own verses. Did this stop working? Uh-oh. Can use that in the, part of the band. Okay. Oh, okay. Let me take that off. Can you hear me in the back? Could you hear the whole poem? Pretty okay. Pretty okay. So that's a pretty good description of what happened because um, she had been promised to this king to be his first queen. Like you can't see any suffering coming in that one. (laughs) She really got it, you know, she knew that wasn't gonna really lead to her ultimate happiness. But in her own words, in her own poem, it's explained that when she became a nun, even while she was a novice, she became completely enlightened. She had not one moment of regret, passing up kind of the silver platter with everything on it. So as we look at the, the deeper, more important things in life, which I'm sure you've All done. We start to recognize as we practice that we are able to develop skills and gather the tools and the support system of other people who have a sense of the Dhamma so that not only can we be more happy and be um, much more of a resource and um, support for other people in, in this life. But we also have the ability to work with what's deeply lodged within old hurt and trauma and past regrets. And... In that vein, I want to share the, the poetry and also Maddie Weingast's version of Upalawana's story. Now, she's that other chief nun disciple who had such incredible psychic powers. And this is what she, she said. The two of us were co-wives, though we were mother and daughter. I was struck with a sense of urgency, so astonishing and hair-raising. Curse those filthy sensual pleasures so nasty and thorny where we, both mother and daughter, had to be co-wives together. Seeing the danger in sensual pleasures, seeing renunciation as a sanctuary, I went forth in Rajagaha from the lay life to home, homelessness. I know my past lives. My clairvoyance is clarified. I comprehend the minds of others. My clairaudience is purified. I've realized the psychic powers and attained the ending of defilements. That means she's fully enlightened. I've realized the six kinds of direct knowledge and fulfilled the Buddha's instructions. I created a four horsed chariot using my psychic powers. Then I bowed at the feet of the Buddha, the glorious protector of the world. Now, this is Mara's voice. You've come to this sal tree all crowned with flowers and stand at its root all alone. But you have no companion with you, silly girl. Aren't you afraid of rascals? She says, Even if a hundred thousand rascals like this were to gang up, I'd stir not a hair nor flinch a one bit. What could you do to me alone, Mara? I'll vanish and I'll enter your belly. I could stand between your eyebrows and you would still wouldn't see me. I am the master of my own mind. I've developed the basis of psychic power well. I've realized the six kinds of direct knowledge and fulfilled the Buddha's instructions. Sensual pleasures are like swords and stakes. The aggregates are their chopping block. What you call sensual delight is no delight for me. Relishing is destroyed in every respect, and the mass of darkness is shattered. So, know this, wicked one, you're defeated, you're finished. Now, I want to share Maddie Winegast's um, inspired words about Upalawana. And this touched me, and I think touched something that's helpful. Upalawana, Blue Lotus. It is helpful to know her story when you read this poem, and I'd recommend reading the actual poems of the nuns whenever you use this book so that you can know what their story actually was, and then you might see more value um, in the interpretation. I hated my father, and I hated my mother for making him my father. I left home to get away from him, and then found him everywhere I went. But I trained hard. I learned to make my hands glow red with fire, and I handled the darkness with a chain. I swore no one would ever hurt me again. Then one night, while meditating in the woods, I was grabbed from behind, this sal tree is in full bloom, the man said. And here lying beneath, I find a flower with a lovely shaved head. Tell me, my little flower, aren't you afraid? I turned around. He looked just like my father. It would have taken so little, a flick of a finger, to make him burn. I looked into his eyes, and I saw the billion lifetimes that he and I had been running around this same circle together. Then I walked all the way down to the darkest parts of my own mind and stood in front of the blazing roar as countless lifetimes of fear and revenge threw themselves into the furnace. Burn with me, my sisters. And when you're ready come up from that dark place where you've gone to be alone forever the paths lead direct the path the path leads directly through these vast worlds of fear and hate we have all wounded and been wounded we have all been made to feel weak yes there is great strength in the darkness Yes, the mind can be used as a knife or a chain. Yes, your whole world is burning itself to the ground. Ask the lizard how long this has been going on. Ask the sunflower and her million seeds. The mind is more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Ask yourself, what are you really prepared to give up in order to be free? We have what we need to heal. And we have what we need to be happy. And it's not out there in the world. But we have to want it, and we have to do our work. And help each other. So we can see through the veil That shrouds those things that are really painful when they look like pleasure. And we can really see the true goodness, happiness, virtue, and wonder and power of the mind. I agree, the mind is incredibly powerful. the more that we become skilled at developing and, and drawing forth these states of mind that are full of spiritual energy and love, the more we can see that if the mind can do that, what can't it do? So I leave that for your reflection.